Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Friday, January 11th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 21. This episode is brought to you by my new Instagram page, at FamTaughtMe. This is a space where I'm beginning to discuss as well as document my fertility awareness work for the purposes of creating visual tools so that people can use this method more effectively and with more confidence. Head over to Instagram and find at FamTaughtMe and feel free to use the hashtag to document your own journey with fam and share with us. We are participating in the political and radical act of reclaiming the power of our cycles and de-emphasizing its taboo and shameful perception. Today's episode is going to discuss some of the ways charting can give you invaluable insight into various reproductive health issues. Since I started this journey into working as a practitioner, I've had a lot to reflect on how powerful this fertility awareness knowledge can be. And with other people, I continue to sharpen my skills and learn more about the diversity of issues we're dealing with as modern menstruators, as cycling people living under capitalism. It surely affects us as does the rest of our environment, and each person has a complex set of circumstances that may be influencing how their body is functioning. One thing that fertility awareness is really good at is organizing those circumstances and identifying patterns. A fertility awareness chart can seem daunting at the beginning because there's so much to pay attention to and you might not know what everything means. But once you get acquainted with your chart, you can begin to identify some really key elements that have less to do with fertility in the strict sense and more as signifiers for different imbalances in the body. You may be much more keen to identifying these issues when you have your unique charts in front of you. This episode is built on the knowledge of the fertility signs and how they function with the rest of the body systems. The process of ovulation that is the main event of every cycle is dependent on the endocrine system and its relationship with the outside world. What we have in a fertility chart is a very specific bioprofile of a menstruating person. Each phase of the cycle corresponds with each fertility observation, and that has a meaning. And these can be clues that medical professionals may not be trained to necessarily see or pay attention to, but they can give you accurate information to make sure you get the best healthcare possible. They also ensure that you can take matters into your own hands and use the information to do different forms of alternative or autonomous healing. So this could be in the form of the herbal arts, massage therapy, naturopathic medicine, acupuncture, or others which could bring you closer to peace without the constraints, cost, or other problems you're likely to encounter in Western medicine. At some point in our lives, we may be dealing with not receiving the best health care or being dismissed by a doctor. These dismissals can become dangerous and even fatal under certain circumstances. I don't find any joy in reading stories about our pain or about the disparity in care that's causing black and brown people trauma and strife in their fertile lives. This is where charting can empower someone who is already marginalized by the healthcare system to know exactly what is going on with their body and to have the data to back it up. Now, a note about charting with fertility awareness in general. The charts don't lie. This is true in regards to when ovulation occurs, which is what makes it a reliable contraceptive. But it's also true in the other signifiers present in a person's biomarker patterns. So when I say biomarker, I mean that when you indicate, today I had fertile fluid, or my temperature was this this morning, or I was extremely tired today. So when you see these patterns in different parts of the cycle, you can 
come to some definitive conclusions and they may not be the final conclusion of like I've solved the problem, but the more information that you have, the more reliable and individualized your data is, especially when these patterns are appearing over time. There is great value in utilizing fertility awareness for the purposes of things other than contraception or pregnancy. In the past, FAM has been criticized for being too heterocentric. And as a queer person myself, I absolutely agree. It's part of why I've made this podcast and will continue to provide this content. It's because I believe that the information resounding in this work goes much farther and can be useful to all kinds of people, all genders, sexualities, and people of all ages stand to learn a great deal from body literacy. And I can see young people really benefiting from this and the potential of immersing them in a new culture, a new positive and empowering relationship with their bodies and sexualities. I'd love to see us teaching sex education without a fear-based approach and, and you know an inherent distrust of young people as well. Even if it's not abstinence-based, most conventional sex education curriculum is still fear-based and myth-driven. So the truth is that this creates adults who are not properly educated and therefore are incapable of being truly sexually empowered. So a transition to understanding fertility awareness on a massive and socially accepted scale would mean a shift in the entire society because it would mean recognizing the inherent power of this information and reorganizing fundamental human systems to meet the needs. So for now, I'm happy to share this in small and manageable ways for us to begin such a transition. And every person I teach counts and the information spreads outward like tree roots. So it's, you know, it's really only getting shared from here. There are really so many different ways that the chart can help us identify patterns which can give us indications of our overall health. It's a lot to even fit into one podcast and each issue could easily get its own time. But this is more to make folks aware of the power in this information that can extend to areas of the body that you wouldn't traditionally believe are interrelated with the reproductive system. There are intersections that are only apparent when you begin to deconstruct how hormones are driving the cycling process and their role in other essential body processes. So I've explained charting to many people who are at first disinterested in the idea of an alternative form of contraception just because it may be irrelevant for them as in the case of some single people or gay couples who aren't seeking fertility help. But when we discuss how the chart can help clue you into your cycle and your overall health and wellness, these folks may see that they have a larger stake in learning this information than they had originally imagined. My experience is to start with something you want to focus on and use charting to work through that thing. There will be plenty of other issues that begin to resolve themselves if you give yourself the chance to focus on one area you want to improve. It could be pelvic pain or cramping or tiredness or moodiness, whatever it is. You can go slowly and learn about your relationship with that part of yourself. For me, fertility charting came as a response to both bodily and psychological trauma I experienced using conventional contraceptives and a desire to live a full, whole, happy life as a grown adult and sexual being. Meanwhile, I had been dealing with the chronic health issue of migraines for years preceding this, which contraceptives were not responsible for, but did make much worse. Like I almost went to the hospital one time, it was very bad. And now that I've been on this healing journey, I've been able to use my charts, my menstrual charts, to identify where I need to target my healing for my migraines. So all the herbs I've been working with, all the living by the cycle in regards to like how I work or how I 
choose to exercise or just me having the you know inclination to do too much all of that is an effect of becoming more body literate the changes that I've made so being able to listen and respect what my body needs is just made a huge improvement on my quality of life So even if you think you're working on one thing, you're kind of working on a lot of other different areas and you'll see that over time. So this is just another way of explaining how interrelated these different systems are and that the reproductive system is not existing all by itself. So now I'm going to jump all over the place here and talk about the charts and I'll even link a typical chart in the show notes if you want to look at it while this is playing and get a sense of where I'm looking in the graph to gain this insight. First off, we have a good idea of what's going on with our hormones when we chart for fertility awareness. In simplest terms, waking temperature, one of the three signs, is an indication of how much progesterone is in your system. The menstrual cycle follows a natural biphasic, or what we would call two plateaus, pattern, with ovulation being the point of change in this line graph of a given cycle. Cervical fluid and cervical position is constantly reacting to the changes in estrogen, Estrogen fluctuates softly on an arc, which peaks as you approach ovulation. So right there, you have a better understanding of what might be going on with these hormones if you're charting fertility awareness, because that's all three signs right there. What's nice about this is that it's not connected to reference ranges on a blood test, which your doctor would typically use to diagnose you or tell you whether you fall in or out of a normal range for a particular hormone Instead, you can see a pattern of what's going on with the connections between these two hormones, which form kind of a dancing relationship with each other in your own charts. So to delve into each of these hormones further, we need to understand that they always work together. They are always in your cycle. They're always happening together. There's never just estrogen and just progesterone. Um, In fact, it'd be really bad for your body systems if it were that way. So they keep each other in check. Um, So they have to be discussed that way. And then one more thing is that we call them the sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. But once you understand that these have an effect on many of the other body systems, you might want to reconsider your classification as these are only having an effect on reproduction because that's just inaccurate. So it's just another way to think about this perspective of the hormones interacting with your whole body. Let's talk about temperature's relationship to progesterone first. Sadly, this relationship is often misunderstood. One of the first searches on Google, which I do often to check on, you know, what the conventional, you know, thoughts are on this, is one of these is very inaccurate. It's from WebMD, which, of course, maybe it's just not accurate because it's WebMD. But the quote is, checking your basal body temperature is a long-established way to predict when you ovulate. Now, as I've mentioned probably umpteen times on here, that's inaccurate because basal body temperature is always a retroactive fertility sign. This means the sustained rise in waking temperature tells us when ovulation has already occurred, has already occurred, already happened, not is happening currently. So why is this the case? We need to understand where progesterone comes from and how it is made. So when you ovulate, The oocyte bursts from the ovarian follicle, the egg, and the remainder of the burst follicle that it came out of on the ovary creates this new temporary secreting organ called the corpus luteum, and its job is very complex. It inhibits the further release of the ovulatory hormones, uh, and it is important to the biphasic temperature because 
corpus luteum is where we get the most consistent production of progesterone, a 1,500% increase from our baseline level. And without ovulation, we don't make a corpus luteum to do this job. So the process works like this. Estrogen begins to rise in those days before ovulation, and estrogen stimulates the hormone neuroepinephrine. After the oocyte bursts from the ovary, ovulation has occurred, and the corpus luteum will form. It begins to release high amounts of progesterone, which therefore releases neuroepinephrine into your bloodstream. So this change is what acts on the thermoregulatory center in the hypothalamus of the brain, and therefore raises the body's temperature. So there's this fascinating communication that's going on between your endocrine system post-ovulation that results in this sustained rise in, in waking body temperature. So I discussed this at length in episode 15, Charting with Waking Temperature, and if you're into the science of that, definitely take a look at that episode because it's fascinating. Um, what is progesterone's connection to other bodily systems besides the menstrual cycle? There's just an immense list because we never talk about progesterone. It's really dismissed in the entire conversation about our health. And I think this is a shame considering how it affects memory and mood and energy, adrenal function, your sleep patterns. It affects anxiety and depression, your quality of your skin and your hair, your metabolism, and more. So there are some reasons why ovulation itself is really important to your health. Because when you produce progesterone, you get all of these benefits. Progesterone is also known for protecting against breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Progesterone protects your skin. It increases collagen content. It reduces capillaries and keeps your skin hydrated. It's also intimately connected to libido because progesterone and its neurosteroid active metabolite called allopregnenolone, which is synthesized from progesterone, is actively involved in feelings of eroticism and sexual passion. So both progesterone and allopregnenolone, these act as natural antidepressants. And this is also why we can see when we stop ovulation by using hormonal contraceptives or hormonal suppression, you miss out on the effect of ovulation, which is a rise in progesterone, and therefore you have feelings of you know, depression or anxiety or panic attacks um, and sometimes suicidal ideation. So there's this connection between progesterone deficiency that you have from using hormonal contraceptives and depression, which is a common side effect, but we aren't told exactly how that process is happening. But it's all about progesterone and the lack of it you know, that we miss out on when using hormonal contraceptives, when you miss out on the ovulatory process. Besides this, progesterone is also a neurosteroid that makes you feel relaxed and happy. And as I said, it promotes anti-anxiety as well as it being an anti-inflammatory substance. And lastly, progesterone is a thyroid stimulating hormone. So there's right there, you can see that it's affecting plenty of other systems that are not the reproductive system and therefore can't be understood in, in a vacuum of the reproductive system. You know, progesterone serves a huge purpose in reproduction, but it serves a, a purpose in all of the other body functions that go on when you're a cycling adult. 
So when you're charting, how do you look out for progesterone deficiency signs? The first indication is a short luteal phase. Luteal phase is also known as your post-ovulation phase. So the time between your ovulation or where you see a thermal shift and your menstruation should be around 11 to 14 days at least. Sometimes it can be even 15 or 16 days if you have a very robust cycle. Anything shorter than that indicates that you have a progesterone deficiency. You're actually missing out on maybe two to three days of the progesterone that you would be getting if your luteal phase is 10 days or less. And it would also make infertility very high um, because the progesterone is what would uh, really feed the implantation. So a short luteal phase is a very clear sign that you are having progesterone deficiency issues. Another example of this in the charts would mean seeing consistently low temperatures in the luteal phase. So as I mentioned before, progesterone is a thyroid stimulating hormone. It raises your temperature after ovulation. So a deficiency can be indicated when your temperatures can't fully sustain their rise above the cover line after ovulation. So when you make the distinction between preovulatory and postovulatory temperatures, you should be able to draw a pretty clear line, a horizontal line across those two plateaus, the, the distance between them. But with progesterone deficiency, you may see that your day-to-day -day waking temperatures in post-ovulation are falling below that line. Um, and if they're doing that consistently, this would be an example of low progesterone because you're not seeing that robust rise above the cover line. Thirdly, Another example of looking out for progesterone deficiency could be mucus, cervical mucus, present in the luteal phase. Progesterone's job is also to dry up mucus after ovulation and plugs the cervix. So mucus in the luteal phase could also indicate a presence of estrogen, or what we would call estrogen dominance. Because these hormones are always working together, the absence of one would mean that the other has the ability to dominate the body systems. So if you're seeing a lot of mucus present in the luteal phase, this could be an example of an estrogen dominance and a progesterone deficiency. Lastly, spotting in the luteal phase is another example of a progesterone deficiency. And this is because progesterone matures and stabilizes the uterine lining. So without it in a high enough level, you may experience irregular spotting. So if you have days of spotting going on or weeks of spotting going on, this could be a progesterone deficiency, especially if it seems unresolved, like you might spot for a day before your period begins. That's one thing, but I'm talking about consistent spotting throughout the cycle or just in a regular erratic pattern. Now, there is a difference between low progesterone and no progesterone. Low progesterone means that you need to support the ovarian follicle, but no progesterone needs deeper observation. You need to figure out the underlying cause of why ovulation is not occurring and go ahead and treat that because once your ovulation resumes, hopefully your progesterone levels will pick back up. So the only way to make progesterone in the levels you need is to ovulate. And the two largest impairments of ovulation that we see commonly today are in the form of thyroid disease and insulin resistance.
And we see that today with conditions such as hypothyroidism and PCOS. The key would be addressing the possible underlying issues that are related to your symptoms. So for some people, this could be dairy or gluten sensitivity. For others, it could mean autoimmune disease. For someone else, it could mean changing their high-stress lifestyle. And for somebody else, it could mean addressing their blood sugar management or their insulin resistance. So really, you can use charting to figure out if you're ovulating. And then if ovulation is missing, you can basically say, in short, you have a progesterone deficiency and figuring out what is the cause of why ovulation is missing um, is kind of the next puzzle piece to that. And combined with some of the other biomarkers in your chart, you can start to figure out like where exactly that's coming from and have more information um, to help you kind of figure out your plan for your healing going forward. Next, we can talk about cervical fluid and cervical positions relationship to the hormone estrogen. In episode 13 and episode 19, I discussed cervical fluid and cervical position charting at length. So definitely go back to those episodes if you want to learn, you know, exactly about how the cervix is responding to changes in estrogen and how to chart these signs properly in fertility awareness method. Because that's obviously the first thing is you have to know how to take the data properly. And then you can listen to this podcast and interpret all of it. Um, unlike what patriarchal science would have us believe, estrogen's not responsible for female hysteria. In fact, we don't even have a consistently high amount of estrogen throughout our cycle, and we don't really have a high amount during PMS, which is like what it's always associated with. Like it's really associated with ovulation and the follicular phase and maturing the egg follicle before ovulation. So total myth there. And it has a short but important arc during that follicular phase of the cycle before and during ovulation. So its most important contribution to fertility awareness charting is that it has an effect on the cervical glands that produce the fluid and the amount of cervical fluid that is of fertile quality. And it also affects the openness, softness, and height of the cervix itself when we do cervical observations. So these two fertility signs are the best day-to-day diagnostic signs of knowing when you are currently fertile. Unlike temperature, which can only tell you when you were fertile and you're no longer fertile now. So how can tracking cervical fluid alert us of a possible reproductive or overall health issue? As I just said, estrogen is supposed to have a rather short arc, meaning the days in which a person has a lot of cervical fluid present or a wet vaginal sensation during the day are short in number, maybe like six or so days out of the entire cycle with, you know, variables person to person. However, in charting, many people find that their charts don't match up with the short window. And instead, people may find themselves marking down having these long drawn out patches of cervical fluid. And sometimes you may have cervical fluid present for a few days and then a few days of dryness and then back to a few days of wetness again. When you simultaneously chart your waking temperature, you can tell definitively whether or not your patch of fluid that you're having results in the event of ovulation, which is what it's supposed to be there for. Or the other possibility is your body stalls out on that process. Most commonly, we see this pattern of many patches of cervical fluid in classic PCOS. 
Polycystic ovary syndrome is a complicated endocrine disorder, and it has a few different possible root causes. But one easy way to identify it is through the criteria of long cycles, many of which will have many patches of cervical fluid before an ovulation occurs. In a healthy cycle, this patch of cervical fluid should only occur once. And this is why people sometimes describe PCOS as being an estrogen-dominant uh, condition. At the same time, because of the lack of your frequent ovulation, you're having infrequent ovulation if you're having long cycles, folks with PCOS are experiencing a progesterone deficiency because you must ovulate to make that hormone in the quantities you need. So you have another example of the balance between these hormones, estrogen and progesterone. When they're off, you have a variety of other health issues that are extending beyond the criteria of a fertility issue happening. The other possible estrogen dominance is in the form of xenoestrogens. So this could be an imbalance you experience, you know, from having a lot of fluid in the luteal phase, the post-ovulatory phase. And because progesterone is supposed to be taking over post-ovulation, it's supposed to be forming that mucus plug and holding up the walls of the uterus, and you should really stop secreting, or you could say drying up the presence of your wet fluid. Experiencing sticky or flaky fluid is typical in post-ovulatory phase, but experiencing lots of wetness is another indicator that you may have an estrogen in some form of an, another, you know, impacting your hormones. And xenoestrogens can sneak up on us in our personal care products or laundry detergents or other places that you might not have given much thought to. So maybe estrogen is heightened for another reason. So if you consistently experience a lot of fluid post-ovulation, this is definitely something to explore with your charts and see if you make lifestyle changes, how will that impact your health? Um, so not only do we have estrogen dominance happening sometimes from a feedback loop in our own bodies, like we're unable to excrete the estrogen that would normally be leaving, and so this results in estrogen dominance. We also have the possibility of ovulating irregularly and this causing an estrogen dominance because we don't have enough progesterone to balance us out. And thirdly, the presence of xenoestrogens. And th these three different causes all have the same effect on the cycle, which is that you have fluid in places in the chart that you really should not. So another thing to look out for is just how important understanding your estrogen levels and when they are appropriate is um, for your health. Now besides the valuable information we have about our hormones, the waking temperature biodata informs us of some of the most valuable information of all, our thyroid health. Adrenals are the battery of the body they give you energy to support yourself, and if they're not nourished properly, if they're overworked or under stress or depleted, it will send a message to your thyroid. It'll say to the body, start slowing down, and your metabolism will begin to slow down. You'll go into fat storage mode, and your body's going to be responding to messages very differently if your adrenals are taxed. So we know that the menstrual cycle temperatures follow this biphasic pattern of pre-ovulatory and post-ovulatory, but the range of temperatures can indicate your thyroid health. So if the temperatures are too low, we can surmise that you have hypothyroidism or slowed metabolism. And if the temperatures are too high, we can surmise that you have hyperthyroidism or a fast metabolism.
and neither of these are optimal for thyroid function or overall health. The endocrine system is a communication system of hormones that are constantly talking and regulating. And because of this, the thyroid is intertwined with most all bodily systems, and its effect on fertility is just one of many. So first I'll start off talking about hypothyroidism, which is the more common one that I definitely see in fertility charts or that I've been able to diagnose that uh, may be missed by a doctor or by a blood test. You might see hypothyroidism with low temperatures in conjunction with long cycles as what is expressed with PCOS and is one of the major underlying conditions of PCOS. So thyroid disease impacts PCOS a lot and that's something that is not spoken about at all. Um, so definitely making sure that you understand your thyroid and how it's functioning could be uh, one of those, you know, really core pieces to managing your PCOS naturally. You may also see it in uh, symptoms such as weight gain or severe anxiety and depression or experiencing other symptoms like bad circulation or improper temperature regulation. So someone that, you know, has really cold fingers and toes, like that's another example of maybe something's going on with the thyroid. So there are several ways underactive thyroid causes irregular menstruation. The first is that you need T3 thyroid hormone to ovulate. Hypothyroidism deprives ovarian follicles of the hormones that they need to develop, and therefore you never reach the process or the event, rather, of ovulation. Hypothyroidism also increases prolactin, which further suppresses ovulation. It robs ovaries of the cellular energy they need. And it also impairs insulin sensitivity. And you're going to want to be more sensitive to insulin to have a proper balance of your cycling hormones. Along with this, failure to ovulate results in a progesterone deficiency and a disturbance of the pituitary hormones in general. So hypothyroidism reduces sex hormone binding globulin, which causes a greater estrogen exposure and can result in heavy periods. In contrast, you may see that with hyperthyroidism, that you have higher than normal temperatures and your heart and your thyroid are really connected. So if you have too much thyroid hormone, you may have other symptoms like an increased heart rate, heart palpitations, chest pain, or heart contractions. Hyperthyroidism can show up in the menstrual cycle in other ways too. The lack of a period altogether is called amenorrhea, which is more common with hyperthyroid patients. And there is also a light menstruation or lack of red blood during menstruation from an excess of sex hormone binding globulin, as well as possible luteal phase deficiencies or particularly short cycles. So overall, there are so many different reference points from which your menstrual cycle can give you a window into your thyroid health. And these are much more acute and accurate than if you were to take a thyroid blood panel and compare yourself to a reference range of other people. The menstrual cycle provides a vital sign on the pulse of our metabolic processing, and it goes to show how intimately the reproductive system is tied to the endocrine system and the rest of the body. Ask your doctor for further thyroid investigation if you have a family history of thyroid issues or if you have any of these symptoms of thyroid dysfunction. If you begin to chart your cycle and you see a range of temperatures that are, in general, too high or too low, with the preovulatory range being around 97 degrees Fahrenheit, so I believe that'd be 36.1 degrees Celsius, 
and the post-ovulatory temperatures being around 97.5 to 98 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.4 to 36.7 degrees Celsius, please consider doing more thyroid testing. And even if your testing comes back normal on a blood test, consider doing some work anyway to heal your thyroid because um, tests can be wrong. Some tests that you can encourage your doctor to perform that might help you on this journey would be your thyroid antibodies, uh, also known as anti-TPO antibodies, and free T3 as well as free T4. So not just a TSH test, which is the usual go-to. Um, so you might want to ask for these other tests as well. Supplements that can take matters into your own hands could include desiccated thyroid supplements, which are a great natural source of T3 and T4, vitamin B complex, uh, but especially B12 um, because it regulates your adrenals and your metabolism, ashwagandha, which is a really effective plant-derived thyroid stimulant, selenium supplements, and vitamin D. Um, try to get outside in the sunshine at least five times a week or take as high of a daily dose as you can of uh, oral vitamin D. The last thing I can recommend is topical or sometimes called transdermal magnesium. Rubbing that on your belly two times a day really aids in the production of thyroid hormones as well. And just like there are plenty of factors in the cycle that we chart for fertility awareness, there's also the element of taking into account menstrual observations. So this could mean spotting and irregular bleeding, the consistency and color of your menstrual blood, menstrual pain, and other symptoms that may be accompanying it, like migraines, gastrointestinal issues, autoimmune disease, things like that. A healthy menstruation should be robust with flowing blood and can range in length of days, but irregular bleeding could be ongoing or spotting that seems to last for weeks. This long, drawn-out bleeding is another indication of low progesterone and could be another puzzle piece to a larger picture. Understanding what abnormal bleeding can look and feel like can be the next step of addressing your menstrual issue. Endometriosis is a disease of immune dysregulation, which severely impacts menstruation and menstrual pain. The immune system makes inflammatory cytokines and autoantibodies that inflame the lesions and promote their growth. Menstrual pain or severe cramps could also be another physiological issue. The uterus could be prolapsed, fallen, or tilted, causing pain. Maya abdominal therapy is a non-invasive manipulation of the position of the internal organs that can bring pain relief. The process of bajos, or chayok, uh, allows gentle steam and herbs to penetrate the cervix and soften endometrial tissue that is expelled during a bleed. I myself suffered from dysmenorrhea for about a decade before I discovered this practice, which was able to transition me to a painless menstruation in under a year of practicing. But because we are so socialized to think of menstruation as equaling pain, and this is normalized in our society, the only solution that we're ever offered is to medicate our problems away, and we're simultaneously fed these messages and even media images that we can, you know, quote-unquote, do it all on our period. So neither of these things address or really get to the root cause of where menstrual pain is coming from. So my hope is with charting that it'll be useful for you to take a look in a visual format of how your bleeds are. Are they painful? Are they long? Are they heavy? Are they short and light? 
Do you have clotting? What's the color and the consistency? And as you explore some healing options, you'll be able to see how that actually changes the consistency of your menstrual blood. And I think that that's really fascinating because we're very much wrapped up in the hygienics and um, the shame of menstruation makes people want to hide it or stifle it in some way. So kind of confronting your menstrual blood and getting to know it better can uh, really do a lot to change your relationship with it. Then there's the issue of maybe you aren't bleeding at all, a loss of menstruation, and this is called amenorrhea. The most common reason for it is undereating and specifically undereating carbohydrates. Undereating triggers a starvation response in the body, specifically in the hypothalamus, and this shuts down ovulation and one will lose their menstruation. Hypothalamic amenorrhea can also be caused by putting the body under a lot of stress, such as if you're in an intense workout program or you're doing something else that is, you know, taking away lots of sleep. Other signs could be an underactive thyroid, hair loss, constipation, and insomnia. Undereating shuts down ovulation, and that's true even if you have a healthy body. Your hypothalamus cares less about how much body fat content that you're carrying and more about whether you've eaten enough that day to keep up with your activity level. So this is called energy availability. And energy availability is a ratio. It's a ratio between the energy intake, the body mass, and the energy expenditure. So how much you exercise or labor. If you don't eat enough, your hypothalamus thinks that you're in a stressful state and it's making a protective decision to halt reproductive capability um, to your benefit because it's trying to protect you in that sense. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is often misdiagnosed as PCOS when the proper considerations are not taken. This is because they both share the commonality of irregular or infrequent menstruations, but their causes are extremely different, and thus fertility awareness charting can bring you closer to ruling out one or the other if this is indeed something you're experiencing for a length of time. So you'll be able to tell from fertility charting if you have PCOS or if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, just based off of the symptoms, the way that your charts react, and the irregularities in them. I've talked a lot about PCOS throughout this because primarily PCOS is a set of symptoms, it's not a condition. These symptoms have underlying conditions that are not gynecological and usually affect the whole body in a number of ways. Other components to fertility tracking can include the regulation of blood sugar management that comes with PCOS or experiencing insulin resistance. Understanding how different types of foods affect your cycle when you're insulin resistant can have a huge impact on what your cycle looks like. And if you're interested in tracking PCOS naturally, using fertility charting to your advantage can help you manage the condition to the point where the symptoms begin to fade. Testing positive for many days with ovulation predictor kits can also let you know if you have high luteinizing hormone, which is another sign of PCOS. So you could actually use ovulation predictor kits in an alternative way to self-diagnose with PCOS by essentially testing your LH levels, you know, over the course of the whole month or something like that. And seeing if, you know, if you have a long patch of LH, which you should definitely not have because it's a very short spike in a healthy cycle, this could be another indicator for you. So all of this can be tracked in the same chart. And as you begin to understand your personal chart better and better, 
your chart may point out several different things to you that, oh, all of this is starting to add up, and then you do have a window into your condition and maybe the underlying cause of it. So in my opinion, this gives you a really advanced view of the state of your reproductive and overall health without having to utilize the medical system to, you know, from a top-down standpoint, tell you what's wrong with you and medicate that issue or, you know, work on your symptoms. This is a much more grassroots understanding of what's going on with the hormones in the body and why are they miscommunicating or why are they imbalanced. Lastly, fertility awareness can also be really useful for tracking how your cycle affects your ability to digest food. Small intestinal bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, intestinal permeability, and more can affect the menstrual cycle. All of the hormones that regulate the cycle are influenced by your gut microbiome. And if the gut microbiome is off balance with an excess of bad bacteria, estrogen can actually be reactivated in your gut where it would normally be going to exit the body. And that, this is how most of estrogen is excreted at the end of the, at the, end of the day. It's, it's excreted out of you. But there's this feedback loop that can happen that can basically end up rerouting that estrogen back into the body when it should be exiting. So we can see that this affects things like fibroids and can have a huge effect on breast cancer. Not to mention that 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. So again, you're seeing like the reproductive system, it can't ever be discussed without understanding its interactions with these other bodily systems. And the gastrointestinal system is a huge one that I definitely will in the future make a podcast on because they are so intimately connected and I am just getting an understanding of my own gut health. So it's, it's very interesting to me right now just to explore more of that connection. And these things may be apparent to us as cyclers because we might experience the changes, but our society continues to consider our discussion of this to be very taboo. And the medical establishment doesn't give the proper consideration to the whole body. You know, with specialty medicine, it's got you running from your gynecologist to your endocrinologist to your skin doctor. Like, it just, you'll never meet that person that's connecting all the dots the way that your fertility chart can connect those dots for you and then you can bring that to your practitioners and their specialties and say hey well this is my window into understanding you know what's vital to me so I know that was a lot of information and that's just how useful fertility charting is for all of these issues you know this podcast is hoping to break down how charting can be a deep dive into the workings of you and it's so much more than a natural form of birth control, which is what I hear a lot. And I don't even like the term birth control. It's a natural contraceptive, but it's really about body literacy. And although it's wonderful for understanding when you're fertile and when you can potentially become pregnant, as well as understanding that, you know, you can't get pregnant all the time because it's a big myth that we had to unpack, its abilities for impacting our understanding of our own health and for our autonomous healing is arguably just as groundbreaking because of how much marginalization we experience in the medical system and, you know, on the intersections of race and class and all of these, you know, sexuality and gender expression, all of these things. So we're already fighting against that. And this is just one area where you can do it yourself and you gain all of this insight that sends you on a completely different path sometimes for years to figure out what's going on. 
And fertility awareness can really give you a window into the healthy cycling of your hormones that impact ovulation, as well as, you know, the presence of an imbalance that could cause their fluctuation or their irregularity. FAM is also particularly good at tracking the health of your thyroid because it is so inextricably linked to ovulation. The thyroid is one of the most impacted and least diagnosed aspects of the cycle that I've seen since I started working with others and looking at their charts. It's more prevalent than I could have even imagined. Once I started seeing other people's charts, I was just completely floored. And now I'm at the point where I'm able to pick up on it very quickly. And a lot of times people are like, oh, well, that's in my family. Or yes, I have had issues with my thyroid before. So it's very confirming for me to be able to pick up on these things from just a quick chat with someone and understanding, well, what's going wrong with your cycle? Fertility awareness can be helpful for tracking a reproductive health issue like PCOS or endometriosis, but even further, it can push you to understand the underlying cause of your issues and address them at the root. If not curing them altogether, there's a chance for you to naturally manage the condition and to bring yourself an elevated quality of life and have some power over the management of your condition, which you don't often get when medicated. You can use FAM to track your menstruation more closely to become acquainted with your blood through free bleeding at home or using a collection method instead of an absorbency product. Understanding what a healthy, painless bleed can look and feel like can set you on a path of discovering how to make that possible for your own cycle. There's other things also like hypothalamic amenorrhea that we just discussed, blood sugar management, and tracking intestinal issues. These can have you examining your diet and lifestyle, making sure you're getting proper nourishment, taking proper rest, and that you're embodying overall wellness. Your menstrual cycle really is your vital sign, and it's undoubtedly going to give you more information about yourself than you could have gleaned from some reference range um, that's analyzed by a doctor. So this really is a grassroots and autonomous healing approach where you're guided by data and you're, you're talking about yourself. It's a really powerful concept when you understand the history of the medical profession, the way it's treated menstruation and cycling hormones as this disease that needs to be suppressed or managed or cured. The natural state of our being is enough and it can give us all this information. So I really am making this to hopefully bring together for people that fertility charting is more than a natural contraceptive or it's more than to treat infertility. It has to do with your relationship with yourself and really learning to live by the cycle and to embrace all of the changes that you experience as a cycling person. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please recommend it to someone. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find me in the future. This episode is brought to you by my new Instagram page, at FamTaughtMe, where I'm discussing fertility awareness. Go ahead and check out FamTaughtMe, and please do use the hashtag and document your own journey with us and share with us. This concludes episode 21 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.